Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. So hello, my name is Ross Odelman. I'm not running for any office, but I did approve this message. <laughs> Aren't those during this season the most hopeful words you've ever heard? I mean, it's, it, it's false hope because whenever you hear them, it means it's the end of a really bad ad, right? But the false hope is that one starts right after it, right? And it keeps going. At least for me, I'm still holding on to the fact that there's hope in that phrase, that one day those ads will be done. Now, I didn't, uh, I didn't plan this uh, message uh, well in advance to fit here. As many of you know, we're, well, some of you may feel like it's 50 weeks, but we're really only 20 to 30 weeks into this series on the real Jesus. And I'm not brilliant enough that when I, back when we started to do this that I planned on this scripture showing up today. And so some of you may be thinking, um, well, I don't really want to hear about politics. So then you're saying, yeah, he's really not brilliant. But... Going through a verse, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, sometimes uh, is a really good thing because it forces us to deal with topics we wouldn't normally deal with. And uh, sometimes I think they're inspired by God, and I think the timing of this one is. So let me ask you this question. Where are your emotions right now, your thoughts right now, with uh, this coming election season? For me, uh, it's my first uh, presidential election in Ohio, and... Uh, I find myself even more annoyed than I normally am at this phase. You see, living in Oregon, it wasn't a swing state. The only things swinging out there were people swinging from trees, tree huggers swinging from trees, and the only other things swinging in the elections out there was should we legalize all drugs or just marijuana? And I exaggerate for fun, but it's at least it's in the ballpark of reality. I guess the one thing I like about this is that uh, I feel like my vote counts more here than it ever has in any of the states I've ever lived in. But it messes with your emotions. I mean, four back-to-back commercials on politics that are angry and angry. You know, the old Mr. Potato had angry eyes commercials (laughs) that are going on. It messes with your emotions. So let me ask you this. Here's a big question. Uh, A week from Tuesday evening... Are you going to be, how many of you will be anxiously watching the results, either expecting to walk away really hope-filled because your candidate won, or expecting to walk away angry calling those, all those people stupid who voted for the candidate who won? How many of you are going to be in that kind of an emotional state? Okay? You know, a lot of people say this election is really pivotal. Maybe it is. But behind that is this whole idea that we want real hope and change, isn't it? And I want us to go through this. The the whole purpose of the message today is I want us to go through this season in the midst of all those pressures for emotions with a greater sense of hope, a greater sense of empowerment, and a greater sense of peace. That's the purpose of the message today. Today we look at Jesus in two passages in uh, in Mark, and we're going to bring in some information from John as well, where he is dealing with politicians directly. And he's dealing with the whole idea of politics, of power, and what brings change. And in his actions, and and it's interesting in this passage, in his inactions, in his words and in his silence, 
He gives us a lot of lessons as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus in relation to politics, in relation to power, and in relation to change. Mark 12 is the first passage we're going to look at, and in that passage we get to see representatives of the two major political machines in Israel at the, at, during that time. And we see how Jesus interacts with them coming to him in a trap. In Mark 15, and we're going to pull in some stuff from John 18 and 19 and kind of harmonize and summarize that passage so we're not all here all day long reading the Scripture. Uh, and we're going to look at Jesus interacting with the most powerful man in the region, a direct representative of Caesar himself, the most powerful man on earth. Now, the passage is long today, uh, but I want you to really try to hang with me because this is, this is such a profound section of Scripture. Jesus is so amazingly brilliant in, in how he comes across in this. And would you join me in Mark 12 first? Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity, and you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the, tr- with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy, and he said, Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him the coin, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. And then flipping down a couple chapters and bringing in some stuff from John, we're going to go through this. It says, very early in the morning. And now this is the morning that Jesus has been arrested. And the whole Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Jewish religious uh, ruling political organization of that day, reached a decision and they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And the story goes on and basically says, Pilate inquired of the charges and the Jews simply asked that Pilate crucify Jesus because they did not have legal authority to crucify him on their own. And Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. And then the story goes on and we see Pilate trying to bargain with the crowd, thinking that if they'll let him release, they'll let him release Jesus by a bargain. He says, would you rather have this insurrectionist murderer released or would you have Jesus? And they choose the insurrectionist murderer, much to Pilate's surprise. So Pilate decides, the story says, to flog Jesus hoping that that will satisfy the crowd. And then bringing Jesus back out to them bloodied, Pilate again says to the crowd, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. 
Skipping down to verse 6. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Lord, we ask that your presence would be with us and that you would uh, teach us how to follow you in a, a difficult topic such as politics and change and power and life in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get one thing just kind of laid as a platform to understand this. In both of these passages, what we're actually seeing is we'll just refer to it as the clashing or the interfacing of two kingdoms. The kingdom of man, the kingdom of government and politics and power, and the kingdom of God in this thing. And the Bible and elsewhere refers to this tension that as followers of Christ we live in as, as though we as people live with a dual citizenship as followers. In the first passage, in Mark 12, we see this obvious setup question, right? I mean, all of us as a casual reader can look at that and go, these guys are trying to set Jesus up. And remember uh, that the two parties there present trying to set him up are people who never work together on anything. They are the polar opposite spectrum of the political machine in Israel that day. On the one hand, you've got the Pharisees, who are the ruling party of the religious Jews, who want to rid the land of the pagan influence and all of the corrupt influence of Roman rule, as they see. On the other hand, you have the Herodians, who they're the ones tasked with the, with the task of imposing the culture of Rome and imposing the culture of paganism on all the people who have been conquered. And these two people never work together, except they've been working together every now and then trying to trap Jesus. And we see the big question that they ask and preceded by this amazingly fake buttering up in the passage. And then the question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Should we pay or shouldn't we? On the surface, this is a very simple question, right? They're just asking Jesus to be yes or no, right? These two political opposing parties are saying to Jesus, tell us which side of the fence you're on. Just take a position, Jesus. But this question is only that simple on the surface. There's a whole lot more going on here. Because this tax question that they're bringing to Jesus is not a question about taxation in general. This is a question about a particular tax. You see, 25 years before this, the Caesar put in place a tax called the denarius tax. It was a tax that was not like a tax on, uh, it wasn't like a sales tax. It wasn't a tax on goods. It wasn't a tax on property. It wasn't a tax on income. It was a head tax. 
you had to pay it just for the right of breathing air in the Roman Empire as a person. And the funny thing about this is it wasn't such uh, an oppressive tax in many ways. The tax amount was really was only the amount of approximately the amount the lowest of peasants would make in one day. So it wasn't like the tax was that oppressive and yet this tax was so hotly uh, opposed because of a symbolic nature. And it was one of these things where they called it the denarius tax because you actually had to use the denarius coin. You couldn't use other denominations of money to pay it. You had to use this coin to pay it. It was so hotly, such a difficult issue that when it was first imposed, a guy referred to now as Judas the Galilean uh, led an armed revolt in Jerusalem, in Israel. He took over the Jerusalem. He took over the temple. He cleansed the temple of all of the coinage that was foreign and all the pagan things that were a part of Israel, uh, 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 part of Jerusalem and the temple. He threw them out and he declared that now the kingdom of God was going to rule. If you look back just one chapter from this, what happened? Jesus was in the temple right before this clearing the temple of all the pagan and coinage and influences and the, the corrupt things. And, and Jesus' whole message throughout his whole life has been what? The kingdom of God is here, and I'm that king. So the, this whole thing comes down to the question is really, really, are you a revolutionary, Jesus? And what kind of revolutionary are you? Because there were only two parts of the equation missing. How Jesus viewed the denarius tax and armed revolt. And they were wondering, Jesus, where are you at in this? Are you going to be another Judas the Galilean or who are you? What's your involvement going to be in the landscape of politics? And that's actually the central question of both of these passages. The second question, the second passage just asks it a different way. It's asked this way in the second, what kind of king, what kind of political leader are you going to be? And that's a big issue, a big question for all of us, isn't it? We hear it all the time. Politicians and governments talk about revolution. In the last election, 2008, Obama coined a term, hope and change. But he's only coined it. Isn't that the message of every single political speech you've ever heard? That politics, that government, that the kingdom of this world is all about hope and change? That's what everybody says they want to bring. And that's behind a lot of the angst, isn't it, for us in these seasons? Is it really going to be hope and change? Or is it going to be worse? And we all have our opinions on what's going to make better or make it worse. You see, the core question behind this, what kind of revolutionary are you going to be, Jesus, is how does real hope and change occur? And how are you going to bring that as a leader, as a person? And the passage extends beyond that question to ask us this question, how does a Christian bring change within the interchange of politics, one kingdom, and following Jesus, being a part of the kingdom of God? How does all that work? So let's look back at the first interaction. Jesus is set up by this question. And Jesus could simply say yes to it. Yes, you pay the tax. But the problem is if he says yes, he invalidates his entire teaching about the kingdom of God and he loses his following, his popular following. On the other hand, if he says no, the Roman authorities are going to arrest him and likely kill him. It's that kind of a trap. 
Jesus doesn't answer the question with a simple yes or no. He doesn't really answer the question to a large extent. And don't you hate it when politicians don't answer the question they've been asked? And we've seen that all this season, right? But Jesus isn't doing that here. Jesus isn't trying to do what the politicians do and deflect away from the tension of what they're being asked and they don't want to answer. We've never seen Jesus shy away from being direct in a difficult circumstance all the way throughout Mark, have we? He's not trying to get away from the tension. He's never been afraid of it. Instead, his amazingly brilliant answer brings us to some places in the way we think about how we relate in politics as followers of Christ that goes beyond most of the major positions that many of us live in and many of us hope through and try to think through. And He doesn't choose Republican or Democrat. Now, before we draw more conclusions, let's look at it more closely. So Jesus asks for a denarius. He asks for the coin that represents the tax for which you have to pay the tax for it. And he says what? He says, whose image is it and whose inscription? Right? The image on it is the image of the Caesar, Tiberius, uh, Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription around it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. Basically, the inscription says, to Caesar, the son of God, high priest. You see, when Jesus asks this question, whose image is on it, he uses a word that we get our word icon from, which to the Jews would have meant, whose idol is this? This tax was viewed, even though it wasn't oppressive, it was viewed as idolatry. And isn't that somehow, sometimes how we feel about politics? We feel like this political position or this, this agenda is sinful, and we feel like it's almost idolatrous, putting something else up, and we struggle with our involvement because of that issue. And yet Jesus holds in his hand this symbol of idolatry and says, give to Caesar what has his image on it and give to God what has His image on it. The Bible teaches us that the humankind, we as humans, are made in the image of God. Jesus is saying, even though the system is sinful, even though the system may be corrupt, give to Caesar what is his due, whether that's taxes, whether that's respect, whether that's honor, give it to him what is his due for ruling over you. But don't give him your ultimate allegiance. He's saying, stay engaged. Don't withdraw from the political process. And yet, don't put your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate hope in politics and government to be the answer, to be the hope and change that you desire. Our ultimate allegiance and our hope for change is in Jesus. Now, even as I say that, that sounds like a platitude. It just sounds like a cliche, doesn't it? Let's, let's flip down. Look at his interaction with Pilate. Pilate asks him three questions. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And in response to that, Jesus actually says, well, who do you say I am? And there's something really instructive in, the, in that response of Jesus because the issue always comes back to not what we think we are, not who we think Jesus is, but who do you think Jesus is. It's a question we all have to wrestle with. The second question he asks is, why aren't you fighting back? And Jesus remains quiet, and there's so much power in him remaining quiet. 
And then Pilate later hears the Jews say, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And then he asks really the fundamental right question. He says, where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Pilate is asking this simple question. Where does your authority come from, Jesus? Who are you? Where does your power come from? And you see the the clash of the two kingdoms becomes the centerpiece of the discussion again. And Jesus responds and he says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is greater, uh, guilty of, of a greater sin. And Jesus gets at the crux of the issue. The kingdom of man, government, politics. It has limited power. And that power is only derived from God himself. The kingdom of God has all the authority and lives above it all. Hope and change, Jesus is saying to us, is not thwarted by governments and political parties, but by sin. He even uses that sin word in his response to Pilate, makes it explicit. Now, a few, a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation out in the lobby with a, with a, with a mom and I have her permission to share this. I'm going to share it anonymously, but I have her permission to share this and, and her daughter's permission to share this. So uh, she's raising this just fantastically amazing, wonderful, beautiful, intelligent, capable young teenager. And uh, this teen comes home from school and says, Hey, Mom, we had a debate in school today in our government class about the forms of government. And she then makes this statement. She says, In a perfect world, communism isn't so bad. It has really a lot of good things to offer. Now, how many of you remember growing up in the Cold War or the tail end of the Cold War? That kind of a phrase to us, if you grew up in there, is like red lights and sirens going off in your head. You're, you're picturing nuclear mushroom clouds. You're, picking, you're picturing uh, razor wire and fences and gun nests and people getting gunned down trying to leave. You're remembering the stories and seeing the images of the political persecution and the, and the religious persecution, and that just is a terrifying thought, Right? But she's right. And she's wrong. In a perfect world, communism, socialism, capitalism, all of them are great systems. But the reality is we live in a world where all those systems are infected by sin. And the sin of socialism and communism or, or larger government and more government involvement, because that's the continuum going that way, is that it, takes, it creates people who are dependent and takes away initiative and dignity and freedom of expression. And yet the sin of capitalism is greed. And isn't that what led us to where we are today? Isn't that what led us in our, in our housing crisis and the foreclosure process and the social ills? Isn't it greed that led us there And where we're at today, the bankruptcy, the disparity in incomes between rich and poor, between middle class and poor, the disparity in incomes between men and women when they do the same work, isn't that the sin of capitalism? And hasn't it led led us to where we are today? And the big question then for us becomes, what is the role of government in politics? 
Jesus in his silence and his sense of living above what Pilate's agenda is, is saying alludes to the role. But Paul in Romans 13 spells it out very clearly. And just to summarize, Paul in the first few chapters of Romans 13 says the role of government is to restrain evil. The government cannot fundamentally change society. Only the kingdom of God can do that through you and I. Now, I think if you're like me, most of us have a hard time and have struggled at times. We hear Jesus say statements like he did to Pilate and where we hear statements that are similar to this all throughout the Bible where Jesus says to Pilate, you have no authority except that which is given to you by me, by God. And we look at that and we go, well, then how in the world can that leader be in office? Right? And we struggle with that because we start blaming God for evil. But if you take a step back and you look at how, how the Bible talks about, how God talks about the rise and fall of nations and the rise and fall of leaders all throughout Scripture, the other aspect of the role of the government is that it's a reflection of the heart of the people. And sometimes, in accordance with a, a, a passage in Romans 1, Jesus or God decides to give over the people to their own sin, to let them experience the pain, for their government to reflect the pain in the heart of the people in hopes that experiencing that pain of what they have been pursuing will bring them to repentance. So the role of government is, is simply this. One kingdom, one kingdom restrains evil and or reflects the heart of the people, letting them experience their pain so that they will come to repentance. And one kingdom, the kingdom of God, is the only force that can bring change because it is ruled by the only person who can deal with sin by removing it because sin is at the heart of the problem with every form of government. Jesus stands before the most powerful ruler in the region, the direct representative of the most powerful man on earth in that day, and he lives above the authority of that situation because he knows that even if a righteous man is put in that role, that he can't fundamentally deal with the problem that needs to be dealt with, which is the sin of the people. Only he can bring that grace. Only he can bring that forgiveness. Only he can bring that hope and change. Now, let's look at a few applications to help us live this out. One is that hope and change only comes when we live in these two kingdoms and yet we prioritize living in the kingdom of God. We're still actively engaged in politics, but we prioritize in everything we do the kingdom of God. How do we do that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is fun during an election period, and I'm convicted of it. Isn't it kind of fun sometimes to sit there and post caustic statements on Twitter and Facebook and forward emails that we think are really funny? I mean, some of them, in a sarcastic way, are really funny. But, but what does that kind of political engagement do on our part to build bridges of relationship, to have honest dialogue rather than dialogue around mud-slinging sound bites that don't really represent the truth? Do we call people stupid who think differently than us because there are some people who believe that a more socialist form of government is needed to restrain greed and other people think that the best option is capitalism right now and moving back more towards that to solve our problems? The reality is both are faulty because of sin. 
Both could be best without sin. And both, because of sin, will likely bankrupt us at some point. Economically, you know, could we move toward one of those poles and bring a better financial prosperity and stability back quicker? Maybe. I'm going to leave that for somebody who's got a lot more expertise to talk about that in a public setting. But even if we return to financial prosperity faster with one of the decisions, will that solve the fundamental problems that got us to where we are today? No. Because what got us to where we are today is the heart of the people and a sin issue in our nation. That can only happen if we ourselves here will be the kingdom of God to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our friends, and let God change hearts and remove sin. You know, maybe the practical starting place might be just what we talked about, stop engaging in that soundbite and mudslinging, that derogatory stuff. Uh, Still vigorously engage our culture with discussions that involve biblical views of finance, biblical views of morality, biblical views on social issues and dialogue there. But true change starts with salvation from sin through Jesus. How are we doing? How are you doing with that in your life? Are you making that invitation? Are you building those bridges with people to make that the priority in your life with friends around you, with colleagues, with workers? Are you reaching across the divide to prioritize bringing people to Jesus? Second, uh, Application, which is really kind of a deeper application of the first. Hope and change can only come through having our expectations rightly focused. And and the reality is that Jesus confronts our expectations being in the wrong place in what he's doing here. He's basically saying to us, don't expect the government to achieve what only the church can do. In fact, I would take it a step further than that. I would say don't expect any institution, whether it's the church or whether it's the government, or whether it's the institutional side of the church to achieve what we need to see happen. It can only be done through you and I. No matter how good the government does in social service to the poor, the problem of poverty will not be solved by social service. No matter how good the government does in education, and we want it to do good in education, the problem will not be solved by education. And no matter how good my preaching will ever become or how good the music becomes or how good our programs through our church ever become, we won't change our community because of them. We will change our community when each of us individually asks the people around us the same question Jesus asked Pilate. Who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to you? Where does authority and change come from? Does it come from government or does it come from us? Does it come from God being in our lives? You see, Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, they're railroading you. And Jesus doesn't respond. And it says Pilate was amazed. Now, we look at that and probably say, man, he probably is sitting there thinking, Jesus, you're an idiot. I mean, why are you not responding? But that word that he uses for amaze there isn't that. It's, it's this word that means this positive wonderment, this marveling admiration. You see, Pilate sees the contrast lived out right in front of him. He sees the enemies are desperate and agitated while Jesus is at peace. 
He sees the enemies using political, par- political power to harm him and protect their own power while Jesus is laying his power down to forgive and solve the real issue of sin by even being a friend to sinners, being friendly in his tone towards Pilate, even friendly towards the people who are accusing him that day. You see, when we think in the earth today of revolutionary change all around the world, or we think about it in politics, and we see it right before us in our country now, when political, revolutionary political change happens in an earthly sense, the people who win take power and they exclude their enemies, and they don't reach across the aisle and work well together. But Jesus, instead, is revolutionary in political change by giving away his power, including his enemies, through relationship, through forgiveness. In Jesus, we see this new personal peace and a new pattern for using power to bring about true hope and change. And that pattern came out clearly in his followers over the next course of the next couple centuries. There's a, social, a sociologist historian uh, named Rodney Starks, and he teaches at Jeremy's and RG3's alma mater. I'm not sure who's more famous, RG3 or, or Jeremy, but uh, Jeremy's more famous to my wife. Um, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Thank you, honey, you're nice. Teaches at Baylor University in the great nation of Texas. And he wrote two books called The Rise of Christianity and The Triumph of Christianity. And Starks asked, how was it that Christianity was so effective at changing the Greco-Roman Empire so deeply, so quickly, so radically completely reshaping the landscape of life and politics in just over 300 years. And he does intensive study of, of the historical writings and documents about that period, and he comes to several conclusions. He says, one, uh, that they reached out to the socially marginalized. In this instance, it was the women in the Roman Empire. And he gives several, several facts about that. He says, if you actually look around the studies of, the, of a lot of the Roman major cities, the, it was very common in a number of the cities to see a, a ratio of men to women of being 140 males to 100 females in a city. Because women were not valued. And if they were born, if, if a dad was sitting there and they had a, a girl born, it was very frequent that they would grab that girl and just throw it out on the trash heap and let it die. And it was legal. Infanticide was legal. And the Christians would not do that. And the Christians would reach out to try to prevent that from happening. There was also the issue in their culture that was widespread where if you were widowed as a woman, you were required to remarry in two years because the culture said you had no value outside of marriage. And it put a lot of pressure and a lot of poverty and a lot of oppression in the system towards women. The Christians said, no, we are going to support and care for widows whether they get married or not, and we're going to care for them. In that culture, women were required to be absolutely faithful sexually to their husbands, but husbands could have as many mistresses as they wanted with no consequence. And the Christians said, no, marriage is between one man and one woman, and God ordained it that way, and they stood up for that. Starks concluded that women, both rich and poor, in fact, there's, a, there's kind of a misnomer out there that, that, that Christianity during the first few centuries was a poverty movement, He's actually saying the evidence is very strong that a significant portion of the movement was very wealthy women coming to Christ and their husbands eventually following and making a huge difference in the culture that way. Starks concluded that the women flocked 
and drove the growth of the church. He, he makes a second point. He says that Christianity was radically inclusive as a community beyond any religion or any organization of the day. In fact, uh, just as one example, he cites the fact that most organizations were built on social class or racial, cla- or racial identity. And the Christians, because of their belief that all sinned, there's no way to be saved outside of grace, that all are on the same plane to be saved, that it created communities of mixed social classes and mixed ethnicities that were powerfully descriptive of the grace of God. He goes on to talk about that they loved radically the poor and cared for them. And none of this was government-sponsored. It was done by them. Emperor Julian, who tried to snuff out Christianity, wrote to a friend of his, and this letter has survived to this day, and and this time I'm quoting it to you. I've referred to it once or twice before. But he says to his friend, Our religion is not prospering while the Christian religion is growing and growing. Why don't we realize that Christianity's success is due to their radical care of the poor? Christians do not just take care of their own poor, but ours as well. While it is obvious to everyone that our poor lack aid even from us. But here's the problem. If we stop there, we just have merely another social justice movement to stamp out poverty and injustice. And we're no different than anybody else. Unless we get at the life and the call and what it means to follow Jesus as a member of the kingdom of God in this earthly kingdom as well. And this radical focus that demonstrated getting this life and understanding it on being, it was a radical focus on being like Jesus. And who was Jesus to us? He was a what? A substitutionary sacrifice. Substituting himself for what we deserved to bring salvation and healing to us. The Roman Empire uh, grew rapidly in major cities. It was one of the first empires to grow huge cities really rapidly, and they ran into uh, severe health problems on a regular basis with plagues. Uh, For example, in 165 A.D., there was a plague that snuffed out one-third of the population of the Roman Empire. They understood the issue of contagion back then in medical terms. And when stuff like this started, people fled the cities like crazy. But Starks in his study, and this has been confirmed by many historians, both Christian and non-Christian, the Christians stayed in the cities when the plague broke out. And they cared for the people who were sick, knowing that it would likely lead to their infection and often lead to their death. But they had this attitude that Christ did this for me. This is what Christ did for me. And if I'm going to follow him, I get to do the same thing. And Starks looks at this and looks at all the writing about it. He talks, he says this. He said, the Christians departed life serenely in those settings because it was their joy to follow the example of Jesus and what he did for them. Jesus came to sacrifice his life for us. And he invites the early Christians, he invites us to do the same to free people from sin around us today. Following Jesus in this example, the early church gave away their power. Another way to say power is they laid down their rights for what they wanted and for what their dreams were. They laid down their wealth, they laid down their comfort, they laid down their safety, and they even laid down their lives 
for those around them. They did not idolize power like so many politicians do today. Instead, they looked at all and they loved them. And they brought true hope and change and transformed the greatest empire on earth in just over 300 years from 120 followers to well over 6 million. You see, they changed the politics because they were changing the way power operated by focusing on the bigger picture of the kingdom of God, being like Jesus and bringing real change through freedom from sin rather than rearranging the political chairs on the deck of the Titanic. You know, and look at these issues that we see from the early church. They're neither the domain of the right or left. You don't have to pick a political party to be about these issues, and Jesus didn't pick that either. And none of the addressing of those issues were government-sponsored. And yet too often we think the government should solve the problems. And we think that they should be the issue. And our relation to them as Christians should be that we bully the government into doing the things we think are right and best. But that's not what Jesus says. He does say, stay engaged, stay involved. The government restrains evil. And the kingdom of God, the church, the followers of Christ, bring His grace to change hearts by being the metaphors we've looked at with Jesus, by being salt, by being light, by being leaven. You see, this is just not an issue that happened 2,000 years ago. 60 years ago or so, Korea was anything but a Christian nation. It was almost non-existent in, Christianity, in, in Korea just over 60 years ago. And today, it is a radically changed culture because of their intent, the church's intent, in all of its imperfection, to prioritize the kingdom of God, salvation, and dealing with sin. And today, you see most of the major political leaders being Christian with a Christian agenda to, in their minds. If we learn to follow Jesus in this way, what kind of change can we, as a community of followers of Jesus, bring to Northeast Columbus? Not just Northeast Columbus, but Columbus, or Ohio, or even the nation. How do we get what those Christians had in the first 300 years after Jesus? How do we get what the Christians had in South Korea that changed it in 60 years? You have to see and you have to really understand how much Jesus loves you. How deep His love for you is. How deep His acceptance of you is. How amazing His sacrifice for you was. And how He passionately invites you to be like him and wants to give you the power to be that. Stop deferring to institutions, whether the government or the institutional side of the church, to make the difference. Let's be the kingdom of God every day to everyone around us and render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Worship him if you want to come. Lord, we ask that you would come. And with all the anxiety and all the tension and all the, all the mudslinging that goes around and sticks to us, and even when we're tempted because it, some of it just seems sarcastically funny, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to realize that you, Lord, are greater. You stand above it all. That you are the one who raises up and brings down. 
nations and leaders and peoples. Help us to realize, Lord, with such a clarity that it becomes a driving force of our life, that it's not a party or the politics that are the problem. It's not even the form of government that's the problem. It's the sin of the heart and that your spirit is with us to lead us, to make us a light, to make us salt, to make us leaven so that your power through us can free people of their sin. Help us to follow you in that, in a radical revolution. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's another simple thing you can do. Over the next week or so, when you find yourself frustrated, facing that tension, facing the angst, just stop. Stop yourself for a moment. Under your breath, just breathe. Lord, you are greater. Your kingdom is greater. salvation from sin to a person around you. Let's pray that together even, just in your own words. Lord, you are greater. You are greater. And help me to bring your goodness, your salvation, your freedom from sin to someone around you today. Lord, help us invite people to that ultimate question question of your authority, the question of your power, the question of your greatness, the question of who you are. And Lord, would you use us to radically transform our community and our culture because we follow you in that, because your power follows us in that and leads us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here and you're newer and haven't uh, been to one or you want to come back to one, we have a let's do lunch with the pastors or a lunch with the pastors over in the hospitality room in a couple minutes. We'd love to have you join us. Otherwise, let's go be light, salt, and leaven this week and have a great week. God bless. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.